questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Why is speaking the truth so controversial now? It seems like most people would rather have lies told to them than acknowledge the truth. Because many people assume that the truth is an inherently painful or bad thing when that is not the case. In reality, the truth heals us and sets us free in much more effective and better ways than comfort, fantasies, stories, and coping mechanisms ever could. In fact, you cannot create stability, healing, or the life you want to create without acknowledging the truth first. Regrettably, telling the truth is sometimes dangerous, especially when it threatens long-standing understandings of how things are supposed to be. Telling the truth or uncovering lies can lead to a loss of friends, status, access to decision-making or credibility. Telling the truth in an environment of deceit is, according to George Orwell, a revolutionary act. The need, then, is not only to tell the truth, but to confront power with power. Telling truth to power. In this time of heightened awareness, as well as in our daily lives, we must discern truth from fiction. Tell the truth when we see it, or confront lies when they are evident. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And to open Season 15 with us, tonight's special guest is Neil Kramer, a British teacher, writer, and speaker, specializing in the fields of theology, esotericism, and philosophy. Neil's work focuses on cultivating a deeper understanding of self, soul, spirit, transformation, and divinity. He studies to integrate many classical and mystical spiritual disciplines. His background in Christianity and Hermeticism has helped to foster a balance of both traditional and non-traditional approaches to comprehending spiritual reality. And directly from the Pacific Northwest, his website is neilkramer.com. And as usual, he joins us for the new premiere. This time is season 15. But before I introduce him, let me just read this quote, which sets the ground for today's conversation. It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. Neil, welcome back. And you say that the truth divides. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, it's it's always nice to punctuate our year with this conversation. And uh, I know we've got a bunch of things to discuss, but there's so many things. Uh, I am well. Life is good. I'm happy to see all the strangeness of the world and the evil being exposed day by day. It's glorious. It couldn't be better. Well, when you and I talked a few days ago, you said that you wanted to talk about truth. And this show is about truth. This is what we've been doing, you know, now entering 15 years. Right, right. But when you say truth divides, please explain. Sure. Well, I guess a good place to begin is to check what we think truth is, which like your work, my work for the last goodness knows how long is also about that. What is truth? Before we talk about it, what is it? What is it to define that word essentially? What is truth? And I know of perhaps a few dozen very good definitions which we could trot out, but here's one really solid and accurate definition, a sort of designation that in my view contains everything important, but in the smallest possible space. So this is the definition that I like. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. So that definition is one I like, and it it contains two very critical components. Firstly, that truth is that which corresponds to reality, i.e. it's something reflective of objective reality, the state, the form, the function, the meaning, 
the articulation, the purpose of something, does it correspond with external, distinct, clear, singular reality? Yes or no? So that's good enough. But the second part of the definition is even better, as perceived by God. That's the clever bit. In other words, the fullness of truth, the completeness of truth, the sort of crystal clear, high definition of truth is only really available, only really able to be perceived by the spiritual entity that designed and made the world, God, because truth is that which corresponds with that world. So there's a an inference in this spiritual definition that sort of the closer your relationship and modeling of godliness in your own life, the more of reality you'll be capable of seeing. And we are, after all, as it says, of course, in Genesis 126, made in the image of this divine being. We, we are corresponding to the image of God in his spiritual assembly. We are flesh rising to spirit. And if we, if we just focus solely on the material world, you know, the symbolically called the flesh, the creation itself, we actually know very little about reality if you're mesmerized by its form. Whereas if you focus on spirit, the spiritual world, the non-physical world, and the creator rather than the creation, we can know infinitely more about truth. So it's what I love about that definition is it, it infers that our relationship with God, it's in that relationship that we can expand our capacity to perceive and understand reality. So that, I suggest, is our working definition of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as perceived by God. Now, your question, so that's that's our working definition. Your question is, truth divides, you know, what's up, what you're talking about, what does that mean, what, what do you suggest in saying that? I see this very clearly after a long time. At first, it wasn't clear that truth is un- unites people, truth brings people together, truth creates a harmony and this and that and the other. I thought that 25, 30 years ago. I, I wondered if that was a cool thing and that was good. I don't think that's true. I, I don't think that ever was true. And I don't think it needs to be true. And there's nothing upsetting about it not being true, that truth divides. And I think a clue to it is, first of all, to understand a little bit of symbolism in uh, spiritual literature. And in this case, we're going to look at something uh, well-known, the Bible, the canonical spiritual Christian tractate literature of the Old and the New Testament. And in, in the New Testament, in Revelation 1, it says, John's writing, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which when he says that, he means I wasn't in the flesh. I was in the Spirit. I was in my, what, you know, an esotericist might call astral or light body. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So there's a lot of symbolism there, okay? We'll pause there. There's so many things, and we don't have time to go into exposit and exegete, all that kind of stuff right now. But we'll focus on one bit, the bit where it says a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. That sword in apocalyptic literature, as we've just read, represents truth. It's associated with the mouth in particular. It 
when when as such it's not about war and combat and destruction as such in the proper context usually when it's associated with the mouth it means truth and later on it says in the next chapter therefore repent christ says or else i am coming to you quickly and i will make war against them with the sword of my mouth so again that's that's a um association of truth and then right near the end of revelation chapter 19 right near the end of the whole bible it says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that it, with it he may strike down the evil nations so first of all we've got that symbolism okay of the sword coming out of the mouth, which is very important because something's being told to us here. Something simple and something poetic, and yet something very metaphysical and very supernatural. And our bit where we now introduce the idea of division is found in Matthew chapter 10. And this is Christ speaking, and he says the following, and I'll just read it for a moment and then we'll decode it. He says, do not think, remember, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So we'll, we'll stop there. What are we seeing here, bearing in mind what we just said about sword symbolism? Of course, it's about the human who distinguishes themselves by giving a damn about what is true, even if your own family don't see it, even if your co-workers, even if your society doesn't see it. We've been invited, instructed to care about the truth from God. And the whole of Matthew 10, sort of verses 24 onwards, is about the, the meaning of truth, the form, the importance of discipleship. And that is discipleship to the divine, to light, to truth. Yes to Christ, yes to the embodiment of God in this man, yes, but to divinity, to truth. Truth points to divinity. And these passages explore that truth and the fear of it, the faith of it, the devotion to it, and the focus on a, con a commitment to it, as you might say. So this like lovely hyperbole, this exaggerational language the magnification of, you know, the separation between a son and a father and a mother and a daughter and whatnot is intentional. Christ is saying, if you love the truth, you have to be prepared to acknowledge those who do not love the truth and instead are adoring of the world, which is not true. It's never true. And that world focus, that world adoration that right now is affecting everyone in every country in the world, this collapse of society. That was the same in 2000 BC, and it's the same in 2022 AD as we record this. The world system was always against God. In Israel today, in Rome, in London, in Paris, in bloody Berlin, in Washington DC, in Tokyo, in Sydney, wherever, they are secular world-focused systems set dead against God. And if you're against God, you are against truth. And the people who knowingly adore the world system and care not for truth are everywhere. They couldn't care less about the reality of government, could they? The reality of COVID, the reality of history, the reality of morality, the reality of the spiritual world. They care only about the sort of world stories of things, the stories of the government, the stories of COVID, the narrative of COVID, the fictional narratives, which again in 
spiritual literary symbolism is called the flesh, to focus on the flesh, the creature, the dirt on the ground, the lowest of the low. They love people who don't care about truth. What is insubstantial? What's fake? What's illusory? They love it. And this leads to a sort of very willful incompetence and a shameful negligence, which, you know, will be condemned and punished supernaturally. And I wouldn't like to be in their shoes on the last day. But what it tells us is that this place isn't about having a nice time and being together and being in harmony and everything's gentle and nice and kind and forgiving and everybody's okay and everything's right. It's not that. That's not the message of genuine, credible, mature, spiritual literature. The message of literature like we've just read, which is historical, is real, is genuine, in my view. The message of that literature is that truth is going to rip this world apart by design, by design. It's the truth is more important than anything else because it's the sign, it's the marker, it's the hallmark of loving God loving the divine, because it is indeed an emanation from him. So although it comes down into, you know, should I get a vaccine? Should I get wear a mask? Should I, you know, bank with this bank? Should I shop on this website? Should I buy this kind of car? Should I send my child to this kind of school? That's very nuts and bolts application, of course, when you care about what's real and what's true. That's, that's not disconnected from anything we're talking about. It goes right down into the most intimate human parts of life. So truth is a daily exercise. It's a practice. It's not just a decision that somebody makes. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. You have to sharpen your power of distinguishing and discerning truth. And that is essentially why we're here. Because the original humans... We're given a, a decision, which is, do you want to do your classroom learning in a very safe, immortal realm, or do you want to do it in a very dangerous, mortal realm, a realm where you will die? Uh, and yet, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil from the ground up. You'll be able to see what's true and false, what's right and wrong. Do you want that? And we said, yes, let's do that. And God's like, well... <laughs> It's going against my proposal to you. It's, uh, it could be considered a sin by some, by others a contravention of will, which is not the same thing. A contravention of advice. Okay, whichever way you look at it, we chose to come to this world. And this world's primary focus is a study in evil, which is the dominant force in this world by design so you can detect it, so you can refute it, so you can combat it. And anyone who isn't doing that essentially is part of the problem. Like in the Matrix, they become part of the Matrix, part of the problem. And so this literature, some of it written about 1400 BC, the bits that we've looked at written between sort of uh, 50 and 70 AD, that literature is talking about this problem it's warning us to say toward the end the division will be very stark and you'll see it not just out there in the world on a newspaper or on an internet screen you'll see it in your own home you'll see it in your kids classrooms you'll see it everywhere and that division is the teaching taking place and although it's sad and although it's very difficult and painful if you love the truth you're in good shape because that's what this is. The worst thing you can do is ignore the truth for the sake of peace. So I absolutely condone and agree with your opening quotation, which was exactly to that effect. You have to stick to the truth at all costs. Now, you can do it with, some, with a great deal of diplomacy and respect and tact and uh, sensitivity. And most often, not always, but most often, you should. But occasionally, it does require the pickaxe, the sledgehammer, you know, where you've really piercingly got to bring something home to somebody. But that, in my experience, that's not most of the time. 
most of the time, if you demonstrate truth in your own life and you demonstrate uh, a, a sincere and considered rational approach to it, people will notice that. I think this isn't just a guy saying stuff. This is someone thinking about it. Does he have all the answers? Of course not. Does he have some stuff? I hope so. But this is someone who's making an effort to consider and to clarify and to balance cases, to balance evidence. And when you do that, you can get away with a lot of controversial remarks. You can get away with a lot of provocation if necessary by asking questions and by saying sensible things. So it has been my sort of quest in a way, just my own little private quest, to challenge everything about the world system, everything, in a rational, philosophically human sense with supernatural reality behind it. And so right now, the division element is no surprise to me. And as I say, although it's unpleasant often, it's also so important and healthy that what was previously hidden and previously just accepted is now being exposed in, you know, preposterously rampant, ridiculous, absurd ways in all areas of society, which is exactly what you expect when truth comes in, because it tends to push things one or two ways, either a sudden and growing respect and love of the truth with all the hazards associated with that, or a total denial of truth, no matter how stupid or how intellectually capable somebody is, irrelevant. The truth mostly sends people running in the opposite direction. And that's the division. That's the sword that God brought here to teach us. I also think, let me just bring something that uh, a countryman of yours said. You probably have heard of this, of who shook the jar of ants. I mean, right now we're talking about division. I think a lot of that division is created by uh, the powers that want to be. Don't blame each other for, for anything. Just ask who shook the jar of ants. And those who are listening to us might be yes. wondering, what do you mean by that? Let me just read this. If you collect 100 black ants and 100 fire ants and put them in a glass jar, nothing will happen. But if you take the jar, shake it violently and leave it on the table, the ants will start killing each other. Red believes that black is the enemy. While black believes the red is the enemy, when the real enemy is the person who shook the jar. The same is true in society. Men versus women, black versus white, faith versus science, young versus old, etc. So before we fight each other, we must ask ourselves, who shook the jar? And I have to say, I see a lot of overlap here, Neil, with our society right now. So many people are shouting to be heard. So many people are convinced of their truth and blame others for not seeing it. But in reality... Who is the one perpetrating this? Yeah. The the one perpetrating this is God, who is saying, I'm going to shake this earth until you look at the truth. And if you don't look at the truth, you'll be destroyed by the shaking. Good. And to help in my endeavor, I have appointed a prosecutor called the Satan, Hasatan, who is going to attend to this shaking. And he does it to some degree to my uh, instruction at my behest. And his job is to test somebody that they will deny the truth in the face of pressure, that they will yield in the face of an apparently consensus pressure against truth. And you'll never see a better example than COVID. (laughs) That's your primary example. COVID is not what they said it was. The medical approach to COVID was abom- an abomination. And, that, and proving that is a piece of cake. It's very simple. Everybody can see that if they wish. But most people, it wasn't that they wanted the truth. They didn't want to look at it. They wanted things to just be okay. And they yielded. They gave in. They failed the test, most of them. Not all. There's a handful of people I know who got injections for their own private reasons who are not crazy. There's always a few exceptions and that's complicated. But the majority of people didn't think about it. They just 
Jesus did something that they knew deep in their bones was not true, and they didn't care. That's that's part of a divine test. So remember, Satan is a prosecutor under God's instruction. Now, he did rebel. He went off the track, but he's still serving that purpose. We also have this situation that if you want to think about this from a, the, a very, very top-down point of view, which I try to do just to see if we can even get there by examining source materials, using our own insights and whatnot. But originally, what God had in mind was to do our education in an, an Edenic realm. That is a realm under the shield, under the aegis of God, where there's an immortality, there's a safety, there's a closeness to divinity, and there's a, a great guidance, a proximity of guidance. And he said, do you want to, you know, I advise you to do your classroom here before I bring you into my spiritual family forever. Let's first of all, you must have an education. We don't just bring anyone in. And that education, I'm going to propose to you do it in Eden. We didn't. He said, well, okay, plan B is that you do it in the temporal earth, the temporal earth. That is an earth in time. And as soon as you introduce time, everything decays. So everything is going to move to its end. When you have a temporal spatial earth outside of heaven's um, immediate proximity, you have a passage of time. Everybody is dying. As soon as you get here, the countdown timer is ticking. And on the last tick, you're dead. And so are the mountains, so are the rivers, so is the sky, so is everything. It's all going to blow away, turn to dust. From dust it came, and to dust it shall return. That was God's tough test to say, okay, if you don't want to do it the way I proposed, there's another way. And it would have been very difficult, that that temporal earth, because you're only here a short time, and it would, it would dawn on the young person that all forms become destroyed. All forms move away. Like it says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world for everything that is in the world, the desires of it, the flesh, the pride of it, and everything is not of God, but is from itself. It's from the dust. And that world is passing away. So we're warned about that. And what it does, though, the temporal earth, is it compels a spiritual attitude. Because for the, the thinking person, which everybody can do, no matter how sophisticated or simple it is, you realize that it's not about the body. It's not about your activities. It's not about your achievements outside. It's not about any external anything. It's about the character and the conduct of you. It's about how your soul imbues itself in your personality. It's about your education. Everything valuable is invisible. Everything. And everything on the outside is just stage play. It's theater. It's symbolism. It's, it's there, all right. It's not without substance, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is what's interior. And so living in a temporal world over the course of a lifetime shows that to somebody. And it naturally gets them to seek the proper balance between an extroversion and an introversion. And it serves its purpose, right? So that was God's plan B, the temporal earth. What actually happened was something else, which is that part of his divine assembly was sent down here to do their job, to help us, to educate us, to look after the earth, to make sure things tick along nicely and do their super spiritual, supernatural, metaphysical engineering and whatnot. And God warned them. He said, now remember, guys, angels, remember, when you go over that time-space barrier, you're vulnerable. You'll be subject to the same temptations and the same hypnotism of the sensual world as everything else. Everything. Remember that. So when you're in heaven, you're hunky-dory. You can't imagine going against truth, going against goodness, going against what's right. You can't imagine it. You think, well, of course we'll do that because those are just so clear, so obvious. But when you get down here, it's not clear. It's not obvious. It's dangerous. You're vulnerable. You're exposed, as it were. And sure enough, a portion of those 
messenger beings, angelos in Greek, which we get the word angel from, those spiritual family of God fell, which means that they turned against the truth and they turned against goodness. They didn't just go independent. They turned against what is true and good. And in so doing, they decided to plump for a sensual life. And they had intercourse with human women and produced a race of giants, Nephilim, Nephils, or in plural, Nephilim, Nephilim. And those giants were a massive problem. But also, the angels taught humans about all kinds of things that we weren't ready for, about technology, about war, about sex, about mysticism, about, you know, esoteric things, about a sciences that we would know nowhere near mature enough to handle. And it created a great horror on the earth, a great horror. And essentially empire was founded at that time, a very primeval time, as you might say, very barbarous time. And so God created a, a flood, a, a magical water from below and above that destroyed evil things, which was most things because they were so contaminated. Only a few remained. And from those remnants, uh, a branching of humanity happened in very different parts of the world, in very different ethnic expressions, very different, um, as you might say, cultural and social uh, infusions of that original uh, root. And it's legitimate, and it's the world we see today with all its natural diversity and whatnot. And that system still had the remnants, though, of this corruption. So the corruption that we see, who is doing this stuff? Who is shaking the jar? The humans who were affected by the fallen angels, their favored humans, bloodline humans, vulnerable to sequestration and control, and the dead spirit bodies, the, the, the spirit bodies of the dead Nephilim, should I say, became what we would call demons. A demon, I would say, the case for this is getting stronger and stronger in my mind. A demon is the spirit body of a Nephilim. So when the physical Nephilim were destroyed, their spirit bodies roamed. And they are under the control and the influence of the Satan, the office of the Satan, the adversary, the prosecutor. And so you've got three factors at play. You've got the prosecutor himself, the adversary himself, the Satan, of which there are several when you examine your theology carefully. You have the demons who are like wild beasts, non-physical, but just wandering around looking for prey like a wild beast does, able to be influenced, by the way. You have fallen angels incarcerated, but with some of their lower forms possibly still around. Some of their minions, as you might say, rebelled, gone wrong. And you have the empire of humans chosen by those angels to conduct their business, to provide food for the demons, which is human sacrifice, and to provide uh, infrastructure for evil to influence the earth and that picture has remained unchanged for thousands of years totally unchanged until near the end when that evil empire starts to collapse and one side one sign of the collapse is the division within society and within its own ranks and so although it's horrible to look at that division is now becoming so transparent so inescapable you really got to be mental not to see it. And we associate that division with social collapse and people going crazy. I mean, it is. It's th those things too. But it has a supernatural property, which is that most people, as we've been warned, are going to choose falsehood and become evil in so doing. And that's very hard to look at because it's nearly everybody nearly everybody that you ever see with your eyes anywhere in life are going to choose what's wrong. They might be nice, as we've said before on this program. They might be sort of capable of decency and not doing anything grotesque. 
But when they abandon the love of truth, they're drifting from God. They're drifting from reality. They're drifting from what is real. And they're not, what they're doing is not corresponding to reality. It's, in no way is it allied with any perception of God. It's a human story. It's little pieces of fiction that they patch together like a patchwork quilt and live inside. And that's very damaging. It's very, very negligent to live like that. It hurts themselves and it hurts the people around them, especially young people and old people. It it hurts the most vulnerable members of society. And so I think our job is to remind people of the importance of truth, despite its purposeful, divisive nature, purposefully divisive. It doesn't matter because the division is, do you want to go forwards into your spiritual family or not? That's the division. It's not divisive because people can't handle it. It's because people don't want it. They don't want to go forwards. They don't want to be in a spiritual family. They want a hundred-year resort life and then finish. That's the division. So you're seeing people who want it, who want life, who want to know, who care, who are embracing their spiritual lineage and heritage and destiny, and people who couldn't care less about that. That's the division that truth exposes. You brought up giants, which is the topic that we've been discussing here, and we'll continue to discuss, in fact, next week. And I don't mean to deviate from what we're discussing, but the more I look into our old world, Neil, I've come to the conclusion yeah. that our world, the old world, was built and populated by titans, by giants. What people deem as legends or mythology may be actually factual. After all, you know, giant doors, giant steps, giant ceilings. No and look, question. And looking at these remnants of the remaining structures, if I didn't factor in those giants, I would think whoever built these structures they were not practical at all unless they were the ones who roamed the earth and something happened that wiped them all out and perhaps the petrified remains are out there for us to study if we have the ability to see. The question is, what happened to them? If you want to deviate for a moment on this subject. Yeah, it's okay. No, we, we always say that when we just before we go on air, don't we, that we'll go where it takes us. There's not a set schedule for me as such other than Uh, our ideas of truth and division. One of those divisions is certainly the idea that the normal world picture of a boring world of boring false science and boring false history is just, you know, this mechanistic clockwork where nothing spectacular happens. There's no extraordinary things as such. A few little bleeps, a few little glitches, but nothing much. That's, That's not true. That world picture offered by the textbooks, the history books, as you might say, the normal ones, mainstream ones, is not true. Our Earth is not millions of years old, in my view. Uh, Human beings did not evolve from other life forms, and there is no biological evolution in the way that it's put forward as interspecies Darwinianism. That's a grotesque, ridiculous thing to think that can be overturned in hours if somebody has got the courage to look at the real information on that. It doesn't stack up. And there's great books written on this about the false sort of evolutionary theory. It's it's so easy to overturn. I can't believe how fast that happens. Even when you have no stake in it, I don't care if evolution's real or not real. Why would I care? I just want to know. Also, as we've said before, things like carbon dating, what a load of rubbish that is. That doesn't work very well at all. And, you know, the very tiny number of incidences of um, historical accounts that touch on the subjects you're talking about that are brought into mainstream education and the massive amount of incidences of credible accounts that are not. Even in scripture, we learn about a bed that is 13 feet long for its occupant. Nothing unusual at the time. And you see that there's, you know, it's not just a normal six, seven, eight foot human who show up, you know, lots of six foot humans, but a seven foot human, that's a bit more unusual. Your basketball player, an eight foot, that's really, it's rare that it goes much above that, nine, 10. But common to see 
11, 12, 13, 14 foot humans. No, that's, that's not a human. That's not a human being. That's something else. So the first thing is, what are they? And it seems to be they are um, descendants or um, offshoots of Nephilim, which is a, a kind of being that has a, a supernatural and a human nature, like Christ has a supernatural and human nature. From a divine being, it's a father, um, and a human woman, his mother. So he's a hybrid spirit man. A Nephilim, of course, in a very different dimension, a very different um, aspect, should I say, is the same. It has a divine origin from its angelic uh, father and a human mother, a biological normal human mother. So I think that what you're talking about is a different world picture where you've not just got humans on the planet. You've got a lot of other things too. The giants are just one interesting, curious part of it. There are human, tall humans that look like giants. There are. But the giants, I think we're speaking about, I would propose, are not human. Now, did they have uh, intercourse with humans, if that was even possible, given the discrepancy in the bodies? Is that is that something they could do? Did they create more hybrids that had a distinction from the original Nephilim, but contained some of their other biological and spiritual material? Maybe. Maybe that's what we're talking about. This subject, though, is forbidden because in mainstream life, you're not allowed to talk about non-human life on Earth uh, unless it's, you know, normal plants and animals and whatnot. You're not allowed to do it. But the more you look at it, the more you examine it, and you, you could take a very credible um, biblical scholar and somebody with real historical knowledge of language and geography and society like Michael Heiser, for example. And in his books, like The Unseen Realm and Reversing Hermon, you'll see a very level-headed treatment of these subjects where he's just putting the data on in front of you on the page and saying, this is biblical account. This is historical account from the time. This is Hebrew account. This is a Greek account. This is an Aramaic account. This is a North African, Algerian account, an, an Egyptian account, a Jewish account, whatever. Here's all the data. Let's look at it. Giants were walking around. They were talked about with no great unusualness. And our history has buried that, not because it doesn't want us to think about tall people. It, want, it doesn't want us to think about non-human people. That's why. So you, you have to try and be careful who you learn from, as we all do all the time, me and you included. You want to choose someone who has a track record of rational, critical thought, historically accurate, realistic thought that corresponds with reality and in the subject matter that we're talking about where do you get a crossover between theology and giants between ufos and demons somebody like we'll uh just stick to this guy for the time being michael heiser great example very very level-headed and in his work uh, reversing hermon you see this timeline that starts to change the historical timeline and you see a mountain of evidence not just bits of archaeology i mean like first-hand accounts first-hand uh historical documents uh real genuine um encounters is the word i'm looking for with these beings with these things whatever they are and he's, 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 he's very careful, somebody like him. I've, I've come across people like Heiser before, and one thing I like about them is he doesn't fall into the trap of saying anything unfortunate in terms of speculation. He just gives you the data. And he makes some you know, speculative statements, but he very wisely um, will tell you that he's doing that. He'll say, well, you know what, this is just me thinking here, but I wonder if what we've just said means this. I wonder if that leads to this. I wonder. That's interesting, isn't it? Anyway, let's look at the next 
barrel of data. Let's let's empty that out on the floor and check out what's inside it. And so his books are always really about language and history, but they so contradict the historical institution of the church. It's hilarious. They're so much more accurate and real and sensible and true. It just stands out a mile. So often when people are struggle with Christianity and think, well, it's so retarded, I can't stand it, I don't like listening to those stupid words. It's because, of course, they've been somewhat harmed by the, the stupid religions that are calling themselves Christian, but really are not. So, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of people sometimes I'll turn people to and say, well, go and have a look at the word work of Thomas Merton, a great spiritual mature man, a great Christian thinker. Go and have a look at Michael Heiser. Go and have a look at David Pawson. Go and have a look at C.S. Lewis. Go and have a look at A.W. Tozer. Go and read Origin of Alexandria. Go and read Clement of Alexandria. Go and examine these people. Tell me that it's stupid. Tell me that it's not credible. Tell me that they're believing something fallacious, that they're having faith in thin air. Tell me that. Once you've examined it, tell me. So I think Heise is unusual, A, because he's contemporary to us. He's, he's here in our time, although I believe he's unwell, so I hope he gets better uh, fast. But he's also uh, subject to the same you know, in sort of incriminating problems from the mainstream academic world. So he's very careful not to discredit himself. Now, he's pretty independent now. He doesn't have to please anybody. He can do what he wants. But still, he exercises the uh, authority and restraint and prudence of a scholar in putting this material forward. So if, if you're interested in anything we've talked about, I would encourage people probably to get hold of his two uh, books. He has several, but the two that I think are most important is probably Reversing Hermon, that's H-E-R-M-O-N, Reversing Hermon. And then his, his more popular book, The Unseen Realm. And both of those books deal with an alternative history, an alternative theology, an alternative timeline. Not that he's making up like some people would, naming no names, but that he's actually extrapolating from source material. He's actually being Sherlock Holmes and pulling the clues out of the environment and piecing them together and largely leaving it up to the reader to decide what they want to do about it. But it definitely overturns the institutional review of theology, of human history, of our timelines, of what was where, when, what were the these buildings? What were these? How were they constructed? Who was there? And it, it, it just makes you realize what an incredibly rich and colorful world we live in. What extraordinary spiritual warfare we're subject to. What, you know, absolutely unbelievable human classroom we've been uh, subjected to this intense teaching. You know, we're plopped into this place as little children of God, babies of God. And we're safe, basically. You know, your soul is safe. You can only destroy yourself. No one else can destroy you. You can only really destroy yourself. Even Satan can't really touch you. He can only tempt you. And the demons can't really touch you. They can only ask for an acceptance, ask for an invitation that must be granted. So even the most dangerous and horrible forces in the world, the Satan, the demons, they can't really do shit against you unless you give in, unless you relent, unless you stop caring about what's true. So it's like that picture. Empire doesn't want you to see that. It wants you to have a picture of, you know, environmentalism and uh, society and culture, food, music, you know, art, literature, gardening, architecture, you know, anything as long as it's just world. World, 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 world. And then, of course, then it wants to flip the moral structure. So everything that's wrong becomes right in the mainstream view, and which we'll perhaps talk a bit more in the second hour. But it's, it's, it's very important that if you want to understand what's going on in the world, which I think most of your listeners do, that's why they listen to you and your guests, of course, you have to have 
a supernatural theological picture. You have to have that. If you don't have that, you're only ever going to know half the tale, half the story of what's actually going on. And the, the theological picture is so interesting because it, it touches on the most incredible phenomena you can think of. If you think about the most phenomenal shows where you've talked about really paradigm-cracking stuff, the theological picture contains most of that information in my understanding. It does. And so, you know, that's that's the critical thing with this. If you want to form a picture of what empire is and what politics is and you're interested in why is why is the voting system so rigged, so messed up? Why is the medicine so messed up? Why this? Why that? You've got to start at the top and that theological picture is essentially this, the study of the nature of our divine designer and father and creator and family member. And it's it's the and I emphasize the rational, mature inquiry into all spiritual questions related to that being and his plan, his project, what he's doing. What could we know? Can we know anything? Could, or could there's no way we can know nothing? Or are there some things we can know? So it's treated very much theology like a science. So like, a, you know, you'll see the definition very commonly where the, the person will say, you know, if chemistry and biology and physics are the sorts of practices of observing the natural physical world, theology is the uh, practice and science and discipline of observing observing the um, supernatural, non-physical world, of course. So that theological information is open to everybody. You can just buy a bunch of books, you can go to a bunch of classes, watch a bunch of videos and get it rolling, get it going. And then applied theology is what we're doing now. We're saying, okay, so what does that theological picture about truth, about swords, about division, about giants, what does that actually tell us about our everyday life? What does it tell us about Mel's home, about Neil's work, about Fred Smith's garden, about Jane Smith's, you know, marriage? What does it tell us? How can it actually help us in our life to grow and change and mature? How? So it's not it's not purely an academic abstract thing. It's something that you apply. It's something that you walk and live. And I think that's the my interest in it. The purely academic side of it is it's it's interesting, but it's not stimulating enough. It's not real enough. And I think that the divine picture of what a person's doing on earth, it's not about knowledge. It's about conduct and character. And most of the spiritual literature attempts to focus chiefly on those things. So whilst it's interesting to look at the metaphysics and the history and whatnot, which we're allowed to do, it's not the primary thing. The primary thing is, so what? What does that mean for our life? What are we supposed to be doing here? And as we said in the first part of the program, in my view, what we're doing here was decided by our ancestors, which is we've come here to seek the living experiential practice, both its informational knowledge, but more, much more its conduct and character of what it is to know good and evil. What are they? How do they work? How do you distinguish one from another? What is true? What is false? Because they, they're objective. We don't make that up. They're, they're quite existent without us entirely on the planet. And our job is to be able to distinguish between them. So we came here to this enigmatic, strange university to distinguish ourselves in that respect. And God says, you know, that's going to be very important that when I bring you into your new home, the new earth with its new astral, its new heavenly layers, a vast world outside of time where your life begins, where everything you've wanted is found, it's not a reward. It's the start of your life. To get there, you have to show me that you care. That's what Earth's for, to show God beyond question that you care. And your achievements factor into that a little bit. Your everyday actions demonstrate that, of course, but it's an internal measurement that only he can see. So although it's very distinct, this thing, only he knows. So that's why he keeps reminding us, don't 
go around condemning people too much because you don't know what they're going to do. You don't know what's happening inside the heart. You might think you do, but you don't. I do. So what you're supposed to do, little human, is concentrate on your own affairs, plow your own furrow, share with those who come across your path, watch with them, listen with them, attend with them, attend to your own spiritual education. And in a manner of speaking, what he's asking us to do is serve as dignified ambassadors in his embassy on earth. And what any ambassador of God should do, no matter how small or how celebrated, is represent the truth at all costs. Usually, like an ambassador, like a diplomat with diplomacy, with tact, with grace, with patience, with humor, with questions, not always, like we said earlier, with a sledgehammer, because that limits your audience. Not not everyone's going to listen to such a person. So you have to demonstrate credibility, which is done over a lifetime. So I think that picture starts to enliven what theology is. It's not something that you do at Oxford University in a little room with some dusty books. It's what you do when you're looking at the world and saying, why is it so crazy? Why why is division okay? Why Why are these social traditions that we've looked at so long radically deteriorating some of them thank god they're deteriorating some of them it seems sad to lose things what's happening without theology you can't know in my view you cannot know you can know a little tiny bit but you don't get the overall picture which is what we all sort of want as much as you can have it we can only know in part here as paul said later we'll know in full when we're in the position to have that perspective. But to know in part is sufficient if you know it in the sense that God does. So we want to know what's corresponding to reality as perceived by God. And the study of theology starts to fill in that picture a little bit and provide a sense of you know peace and security, a sense of sanity that something much more sane, much more organized than we thought is actually happening. And it's not in the hands of men. It's not in the hands of politicians and military and leaders and secret families. It's not in the hands of Satan and demons. It's in safe hands. But the division is the thing that we have to deal with, which is, you know, obviously part of the subject of this. And I expect we'll explore that a bit more in the second half. You know, you keep opening doors. And let me just say this. Before international health passports come along, before central bank digital currency attached to a social score becomes active, before your carbon footprint score prevents you from driving or traveling, I always recommend people to travel as much as they can. And I don't know why, as you were speaking, I'm thinking of my travels to southern Spain. In in Seville, in Granada, you see a church next to a mosque, next to a synagogue, right next to each other, which tells me that this coexisted in peace you know, during the 800 years, the Moors were there. But as of today, and I believe this is starting right now as we speak, you probably have heard of the the uh, One World Religion headquarters said to open this year uh, in right. an island in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East with the, you know, the three Abrahamic religions. That seems to have a different connotation than what existed in southern Spain. What is your take on this new One World Religion headquarters said to open? I've never heard of it, so I couldn't tell you, but uh, I think I get the gist of it. Um, What they're trying to do is bring forward uh, uh, a relativism to religion, which says every religion is essentially doing the same thing. They're all trying to recognize the same God, and they're all trying to overlap each other with different traditions, and we're we're all really doing the same thing. We're all on the same journey being animals, lifting ourselves to something more, and we're all in God's hands, and it's okay. And the more we bring those together and remove the divisions, the better and happier and more humane everything will be. That's bullshit. That's wrong. That's untrue. Some religions have a decent spiritual picture. Some religions have a preposterous spiritual catastrophe. No picture at all. And one or two religions have a very, very close picture of it. And one religion, which is 
that to follow Christ has the best theological picture there is, in my view. That's that's an historical analysis, how you achieve that thing. It's not just doctrinal. It's not just about belief and faith. It's about history. The historical picture that it provides shows us that Christianity has something. And as I've said many times, empire notably hates Christianity. It tried to erase it with Romanism. That didn't work in the 16th century. That fell to pieces. It doesn't mind the other religions because they're inherently polytheistic basis and they're inherently uh, relativistic doctrines. Uh, And no danger to empire. It's very happy with that. But the absolutism of real spiritual life, which is you either love the truth and you have access to it or you don't, they, that's a danger to empire. So any effort to harmonize religions and to bring them into, you know, like a church where everybody's welcome and everybody's this, well, in a real spiritual community, everyone is welcome, but you're not all welcome to believe rubbish. You're not all welcome to have 85 different versions of the truth. There's one truth, one truth, and you either have it or you don't. And you've got to substantiate it. You've got to say, this is why I think it's true. This is what I'm basing that statement on. These are the uh, hallmarks of that truth. And this is how I'm exercising it. You have to do that. But you can't say there are lots of truths. There's not. So as we say again, what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Most world religions do not correspond to reality. Abrahamic religions are not the same. They're not essentially the same. They're not there's, there's one spiritual world picture, and the funny thing is, real Christianity, totally divorced, by the way, from the grotesque mainstream institution of the church, mostly, I'm sad to say, real Christianity has that world picture. It has it. Now, I, I didn't need it to. I don't care if it has it or not. If Christ is a mythological fantasy or not, why should I care? But in analysis of this over the decades, I've found to my gladness and surprise and sustenance that real Christianity does have the picture. The problem is finding people who teach it because they are few and far between, very, very few and far between. Most people have no clue what it is and how to study that material. They don't, they're not sure. So that suits empire perfectly and the more they can dilute that picture and muddy it and sort of you know worldify it the better so christianity just becomes a sort of lifestyle choice a sort of spiritual accoutrement you know and it's it's how i what color i'm wearing what building i sit in what particular book i'm reading today they would love that they would love that so i think the project you're speaking of if we're getting the right sense of it, is perhaps one of those kind of efforts that's happened many times before. The general Christian church, the Roman Catholic church, that's what that was. It was a, a collation. It was a conflation of lots of different things to make it difficult for people to understand what the scriptures say. And they succeeded very carefully in that. They couldn't change the origin of the scriptures they couldn't even change the content of the scriptures there's very very few changes it was too late by the four and five hundred a.d when the catholics got the hands on it it was too late it was already out so what they tried to do was change the interpretation of it not the translation that was too late was already out the interpretation of it they that's what they tried to do so that generalizing of the church has already been done in 450 a.d Today, they're just having another crack at it by the sounds of it. I want to discuss more of this and what I'm, what I was going to say now, I'm going to leave for part two. I mean, you've already used certain words that the algorithm and social media hates and will give me a strike. But when oh, we come yeah, to sorry. part two, no, that's okay. When we come to part two, <laughs> I'll, uh, we'll remove our gloves. I have a few things to say about what you just said. But what okay. I was mentioning about this new One World Religion headquarters is the Abrahamic family house where they're just joining the three religions. I mean, we've seen this, if we can call him the Pope, 
I, let me just save the words for part two anyway. How can people learn more about your work? And also, you have been the collaborator on a book from our mutual friend, uh, Professor Gloria Moss, yes. uh, which is a great book. Tell me about that, if you can. Yeah. Um, so our friend, Gloria Moss, and her friend, Catherine Armitage, have written, uh, put together uh, a super book collecting the writings of, of a number of people, including myself. <laughs> They've brought a book out called Light Bulb Moments and the Power of Critical Thinking. And the subtitle is Insights from Inquiring Minds and Literary Heroes. And it's essentially about the value of critical thinking and what that means in the world today and how it's under attack and who opposes it and who advocates for it. And she's, uh, Gloria and Catherine have gathered together a, a bunch of different people, 24 thinkers, uh, as they describe it. And they very, you know, delightfully asked me to participate in that book, which I did. And it's available, it's out. So I think if you go to amazon.co.uk and type in light bulb moments and the power of critical thinking, you'll see it. And the authors, as I say, Gloria Moss uh, and Catherine Armitage. And it's, it's an anthology of works and essays by different people. I'm one of them. There's a bunch of other wonderful people too. And it's uh, it's a great book, nice Christmas present. Good to Good to get for yourself, good to give as a gift. And it couldn't be more timely. It could not be more timely, this book. Especially if you've got people who are sort of on the fence or are new to these kind of things. You know, not old veterans in the, you know, Veritas camp, but perhaps someone in your family who doesn't know much about anything. And once again, a sober, mature take on these things. This book, I think, will serve that purpose very well. I was honored to have been chosen to write for the book as well, but due to time constraints and personal issues I could not but if there's a sequel in the future I'll be delighted to participate yeah yeah you should that'd be great well yeah Neil, and if you want to if you want to learn more about me as you asked yes of course neilkramer.com uh, n-e-i-l-k-r-a-m-e-r neilkramer.com and you can see everything there and read things listen things watch things buy things if you wish but neilkramer.com always a pleasure having neil kramer to be our number one guest for the number one episode of the season, season 15. It's almost like having a shaman here. Bless us for the rest of the season. This is Mel Hasselrich. My special guest is Neil Kramer. One more hour. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.